Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Learning Curve podcast. Uh, I am your guest co-host, Charlie Chippio, and co-hosting with me today, I'm happy to say, is Alicia Searcy. We are pleased to have Albert Cheng with us today as our guest. Professor Cheng is at the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas and is the director of the Classical Education Research Lab. So before we go and get into that, today we are going to start with a couple of stories, as we always do, that are, you know, sort of making waves in the education world. And there were a lot of stories, Charlie, I can tell you that. I know, Alicia, I know, had a little, uh, as my mother would have said, agita about trying to figure out which one to cover, because there's so many... Because there are so many going on right now, but we have narrowed it down to one each for you, even though, as Alicia mentioned, we could do a separate podcast just on the stories that are out there this week. But we're going to try to give you the cream of the crop here today. Yes. So I'm going to start with the results of a new nationwide poll of a thousand Democrats, a thousand Republicans and 500 independents that just recently in the last few days came out. And the poll finds increasing dissatisfaction with the quality of public schools. Overall, 39% said they were satisfied with the quality of their public local public school, and 49, 41%, I'm sorry, were dissatisfied. It's very interesting. And I used to write polls for an organization I work for, so I probably get a little too excited about this polling stuff. But <laughs> I found it very interesting that when you broke down the numbers, the people who are the least satisfied with their public schools were moderates who lean Republican, and 52% of them were dissatisfied, followed closely by Republicans, who 51% of whom were dissatisfied, while only about a third of Democrats were satisfied. We always, in this very polarized political world, have been trained, rightly, to look at what independents are saying. And if you look at independents, they were dissatisfied by about a seven-point margin over those who were satisfied. You know, as I looked into it, I I wanted to talk about this because I think there's a lot going on in this poll. This is more evidence, it seems to me, that more and more parents didn't like what they saw when remote learning brought their children's education kind of into their homes during the pandemic. And there's also something of a modified version of the classic polling effect of, you know, Congress stinks, but my member of Congress is great. Um, While the dissatisfaction was growing uh, generally, schools are more popular among people with children over, I'm sorry, with children under 18 than they are with with those who have grown children or who are childless. And then, of course, there's always the political implications of these kind of things. I thought it was interesting because 52 percent of those who say they approve of President Biden's job performance also are satisfied with the schools, while only 31% of those satisfied with the president's performance are dissatisfied. So there does seem to be, you know, some political viewpoint on this. Last week in the Republican debate, many of us saw that, you know, the return to the old Ronald Reagan proposal to eliminate the U.S. Department of Education, a few of the candidates mentioned that. I tell you, as I watched that and listened to it, my own take was that the U.S. Department of Education is kind of a sideshow. I think that common, the whole Common Core debacle confirmed that regardless of whether we have or don't have a, depart, a Department of Education on the federal level, you know, the important thing is to keep the money and the policy decisions in education local. 
all this, you know, candidates are talking about it, but, you know, historically, education has not been a huge issue in certainly in national campaigns and even to a, to a certain extent in state and local campaigns. So I think the thing I take away from this poll is it's going to be very interesting to see if increasing dissatisfaction with local public schools means that the issue does become an issue that is going to be important in the upcoming national elections. Yeah, I hope that it does. And I think in the last few years, some of the polling that I had been hearing about education has become more of an issue, but it's still, I don't think is, you know, getting up there in the top five. And so that's troubling to me, of course, because education is my jam. You know, well, I thought and you're was- right. You know, that certainly was the case, obviously, in Virginia, right, where Youngkin got elected governor. So it may well be changing. It is. And I'll tell you just the one question I had about that article, Charlie, is I'm wondering what exactly people are dissatisfied about. I think I'd probably be one of those people that is somewhat satisfied with the job that Biden is doing, but I too am dissatisfied with our education system as a whole. But I'm wondering what people I would I would have liked to have seen maybe some of the cross tabs if it's there or even if they asked what exactly are people dissatisfied about. I think on one side you have those folks who are concerned about book banning and all of that who feel that Perhaps all of a sudden students are learning things that they don't want them to learn. But then on the other side, you have people who are concerned, right, about books being banned as an example, right, and taking a comprehensive education out of school. So I'm curious if it's that, if it's the teacher shortage, there are a number of issues that we're facing in education. So I would have loved to have seen what exactly people are dissatisfied when it comes to public education. Well, I'll tell you, I think that I, generally speaking, am my views are kind of along the same lines as yours, but I don't want to be like Debbie Downer here. But from a lot of experience writing these polls and working on them, I think that if you saw the cross tabs and the sort of more detailed information, you might be a little bit disappointed <laughs> because I don't <laughs> think you'd see I don't think you'd see, you know, a lot of specifics there. Yeah. I think a lot of this stuff just has to do almost more with feelings without a lot of specific data. But maybe that can change over the course of a campaign where people are really paying attention. Yeah. And that's what I'm hopeful about. At least put this issue on the radar of voters and make education something that really matters to Americans, period. That would be great. I'll tell you, that would be life changing. So so what do you have for us, Alicia? As you said, there are so many stories and we could do a whole show just on some of the stories out there this week. But I chose an Associated Press article uh, entitled Texas Takeover Raises Back to School Anxiety for Houston Students, Parents and Teachers. And so if you're following this at all, you know that Houston School District has been on the hot seat for several years. And I haven't followed every single detail, but my sense is that a lot of it has to do or had to do with kind of a dysfunctional school board, a lot of infighting, governance issues, those kinds of things. And of course, student performance was also an issue. And it appears now with this new state superintendent that he's decided to take over the school district. And it's obviously creating a lot of angst for parents. And so I am one of those people who believes that Sometimes takeovers might be necessary depending on the circumstances of the district. I don't believe that it's a catch-all and anyone should have the, the ability to do that. I think there are a lot of things that should happen before you get to the place of taking over a district. And I will also add that I'm not a real partisan person. I'm a Democrat, 
but I work with Republicans all the time, especially on these education issues. But I have to say that there appears to be this move across the country of Republican governors or superintendents or state legislators who kind of want to seize communities of Democratic-led areas. We're seeing it in Georgia with the Trump indictments, all these new investigations that now Republicans want to do to investigate the district attorney in Fulton County. I think this argument could be made when you look at, gosh, what's the state now? Oklahoma, where the new Republican state school superintendent was threatening to take over the Tulsa school district. And as a result, the local superintendent resigned, I think sometime this week to essentially save the school district. And so now we're in Houston where we have this similar issue. And so it concerns me that if you're going to take over a district, let it be because of the right reasons, not because of politics, Democrat, Republican, et cetera. And so this concerns me also when you look at the article in particular, it talks about parents concerned, teachers being concerned. One of the things that it points out, Charlie, which is kind of scary to me, is hearing that this state superintendent is requiring more than 100 districts in, excuse me, 100 schools within the Houston ISD to essentially use a script when it comes to curriculum in each classroom. So teachers have to be scripted on everything that they're teaching. And they have video cameras in the classroom. Oh, my God. This is a little bit scary. And when you think about the fact that we've got this teacher shortage, and even if in your community, if you don't have a teacher shortage, teachers are frustrated and stressed out. They are walking out of classrooms, right? You have superintendents who are leaving big turnover everywhere. I think the last thing you want is to have more control over you. You can't even teach what you need to teach and you have to follow a script. And so it's going to be interesting to watch what happens in Houston with this takeover. Will other states, other districts, you know, deal with this? And I think we have to ask the question, when do we finally decide that we're going to take politics out and do what's best for students, for teachers and for parents? Guns and video cameras in the classroom. Is that what we've come to, Alicia? I don't know. (laughs) There is an authoritarian strain going through our politics these days that I really find very terrifying. It is. It is absolutely terrifying, especially for folks who believe in less government. It seems to be that we're getting more and more government involved. Yeah. Isn't that the irony? Isn't that the irony? That is exactly right. Well, that was good. Thank you. Got me thinking, which is sometimes dangerous, but, you know, anyway. Our guest for today is Professor Albert Chang. He's an assistant professor at the Department of Education Reform in the College of Education and Health Professions at the University of Arkansas. He's a director of the Classical Education Research Lab, where he conducts research on the effects of classical education on character formation. Professor Chang is a senior fellow at CARDIS and an affiliated research fellow at the Program on Education Policy and Governance at Harvard University. Dr. Chang serves on the governing board of Anthem Classical Academy and on the editorial board of the International Journal of Christianity and Education. He taught high school math at James Logan High School in Union City, California, after completing his undergraduate studies in pure mathematics from the University of California, Berkeley. 
He later returned to school receiving a master's degree in education from Biola University and his PhD in education policy from the University of Arkansas. Professor Chang, thank you for joining us today. We are really happy to have you and look forward to our conversation. Well, thanks for having me too. Glad to be here. All right. Well, let's dive right in. Why don't we sort of start out more generally? Maybe you can begin by sharing your own personal narrative, how you became interested in K-12 education policy, school choice, and discuss the importance of classical education in your philosophy about the mission of schooling. Yeah, sure. So I got into education right after college. I became a high school math teacher at a local public school near my hometown out in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in -hmm. California. Yeah, and I did that for a few years. Did like an intern teacher training year and then taught, I think, three years after that. My memory's hazy. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) You know, so yeah, (laughs) you know, but yeah, so you know, I got into education just just as as a math teacher, and I think what struck me in my experience there was we focused a lot on teaching math content. You know, the test scores. I mean, this was kind of in the middle of the heyday of of No Child Left Behind, and you know, I just always had this feeling that something's missing. It's you know, it's as if we're we're not educating the students' character. Uh, you know, it's so focused on academic content and we're missing some of these these other elements of formation. So, you know, I, after I taught for a few years, got interested in going back to grad school, maybe doing ed policy. And it was there I really got acquainted with just some philosophers of the day, you know, Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre. I think it's like my first really serious reading of Aristotle and C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. And I, I think the I, usual math teacher content. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, mathematicians <laughs> from the past, right? <laughs> but you know, I, I think it was that there where I really got this deeper level of understanding about, you know, how we kind of in, in contemporary times think about virtue and character compared to how people used to think about it, you know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago. And so, really, just dove, you know, more deeply into thinking about character education and and trying to bring attention to that piece, piece in education. And, you know, for the kind of early part of my my scholarly career, I did some research with, you know, about social emotional learning, non-cognitive skills, uh, essentially running with psychologists and economists, thinking about these things through that discipline. And, you know, I think eventually I just kind of felt and, and discovered that the classical tradition is really the way that I thought about how character formation and virtue formation worked. And so, yeah, just, uh, you know, more recently have dove, uh, you know, and immersed myself in, in, the, in the classical world to study character formation. Well, you know, you mentioned your background in mathematics and the fact that, you know, going back a thousand, as you said, 2000 years ago, you know, a firm grounding in math was a hallmark of a well-rounded education. Your background is not like a lot of other K through 12 education policy wonks. Can you talk about this role of math in your own education, how it shapes this approach to schooling, how it shapes your worldview today, even as you, in some sense, broaden out from just math? Yeah, yeah, um, of course. You know, so so as you know, you know, I majored in, in pure mathematics. Um, yes. And, now, what what uh, I keep reading that. What tell me what that is. How, <laughs> what does that mean? Not apply. So you know, I'll tell you a story. I mean, like when I you know when I was uh, still an undergrad and working on my degree, my parents would often ask me like, hey, wait, wait, what what exactly are you gonna do with this? You know, because. <laughs> 
And, and usually they ask that question after I was just talking about stuff that I learned, maybe making some remark about some really elegant theorem or fascinating theorem, you know, from set theory or abstract algebra that I was learning about and, and you know, heard a lecture on or something. And, you know, I, I, I just personally found it elegant and fascinating. I mean, and it had no, in learning these things, thinking about its practical application was was not something on my mind, right? You know, when you're doing set theory, I mean, we just like started you know, to find a set. What's a set? And how do we establish all the natural numbers from a set of axioms? And, you know, we're like just immersed in thinking about these interesting questions. You know, what's a number, right? Um, and so, you know, and so that kind of maybe gives you a little flavor of pure math. I start with definitions and then see yeah. where those definitions can go. You know, what can you prove with these definitions? And, you know, with this set of theorems, can we derive other theorems? And right, and so, you know, you kind of, I felt like a kid, like playing with, you know, Legos or something. Yeah, right? like, doing something you love. Yeah, you're just building, right? Imagining. My, my tangent on that, Professor yeah. Chang, is to say that I am convinced now as a parent that there is definitely a correlation between men, when parents look at you and say, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. And how recently they have either received or paid a tuition bill. Oh, That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that was, uh, I'm, I'm sure that was something. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. But, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, and my, my parents are, you know, they're like, yeah, what about do maybe do something applied? I, you know, I eventually didn't heed their advice, but uh, look, everything worked out. So it was all good. <laughs> That's yeah. right. They love what I'm doing now, but but you know, I mean, back to back to you know, you you asked yeah. about how this this contrast, you know, say between pure math or applied math, might underscore just you know some of the paradigms that are going on in education. You know, I, I'd say today there's definitely a larger focus on applied, right? So you know, I, I mean, I think for the past you know slightly over 100 years, just with progressive era reforms and just pragmatism as a philosophy. You know, we've kind of grown used to thinking about an education being good if it's useful, you know, and, and and I think what we mean by useful is, does it generate marketable skills? Can we make money off of it? Can we become economically viable? And will it set kids up to have money and resources to satisfy whatever they need and want? And, you know, there's really a utilitarian view to education. And, you know, I'm not here to say that, you know, totally dismiss that. I mean, I, I think it's important, you know, we need to develop some skills and, you know, having economic viability is important. But, you know, in some sense, you know, perhaps we swung that that pendulum too hard. You know, I mean, it's, I think every math teacher can attest to this, right? You teach something and, you know, a student's going to say, why do I need to learn this, right? Am I ever going to use this, right? This, this is like this perennial question that comes up in every secondary math classroom. And, you know, I think pure math kind of hints that actually there's a different question to ask that maybe is this useful isn't the right question, that maybe doing something for its own sake has value. And I think that's you know, certainly, you know, something I, I you know, is, is my own conviction about education that, its formation and some of it's to learn things purely for their own sake, to have joy in inquiry, right? To, you know, find joy and wonder in figuring out the nature of things, to understand the world around you, to understand the human condition, to understand yourself. So, you know, you don't study literature and the, you know, humanities primarily just to get a job, but to answer these big questions that are important to life and and kind of as, as Socrates says, right, you know, it's, it's that examined life, right? Right. right. That, that, that really leads to a fulfilled life. And that, I think that's, 
you know, personally, that's kind of my view of, of what we should be after in education. And certainly that aligns with the classical view. You know, it's about, you know, forming students, they grow in wisdom and virtue. They interact and understand what truth, goodness, and beauty are so that they can live a life well lived. You know, at the end of the day, when they're about to die, they can say, yeah, like my life was worth it. So, you know, I mean, it's interesting, the kind of the pure math and, and applied math. I mean, I think it does kind of illustrate some broader contrast in, in some educational paradigms. Right. Well, yeah, I really want to sort of dig into that a little bit more. You direct the Classical Education Research Lab, and I have to tell you, I recently stopped after four years of being an adjunct at a local university here. Mm. And I have to tell you that the experience, and I was teaching a, a public policy writing class, and the experience made me a crusader for the value of classical education. Mm. Um, because, you know, it was so clear to me that while my students had a number of talents, I did not, that they were <laughs> really lacking in that area and that it really affected in particular the kind of writing skills that I was trying to, to mm -hmm. teach them. So, yeah. so uh, tell us uh, about this work that you do uh, in the Classical Education Research Lab, why a classical education is so vitally important for instilling the kinds of habits of mind and character and why background knowledge necessary for a good education. Yeah, just a little bit about the lab. I mean, it's essentially, you know, the mission and the aim there is to bring data to bear on, on what's going on in the uh, classical education movement. So right now, I mean, we're just unfolding before us uh, right now is this, this resurgence of, of interest in classical education movement. You know, we're seeing schools form, enrollment grow. And so, you know, with the lab, you know, what, I, what we were aiming to do here at the lab is to do research, empirical research, to do two things. One is to simply describe the condition of classical education. How many students are we talking about? How many schools do we have? What are some systematic needs? You know, for instance, teacher pipeline, teacher training issues, leadership training issues. And so a lot of the, this movement has been pretty grassroots and we don't really have a, a kind of bird's eye view picture of everything that's going on. And now that the movement's getting big enough, you know, they're finding that, well, you know, we, we actually need to describe the condition and state of things a bit better so that we can support it, right? And so really that's that's one of the, the types of research we wanna do. And then, you know, the other type is to simply subject uh, some of the claims of classical pedagogy to an empirical test. So for instance, one of the recent studies I did talked to a lot of classical educators and they might say, you know, it's important to teach kids poetry because poetry has some kind of mysterious magic to it, right? Kids love it. It conveys knowledge in a way that you know non-poetry or, or texts that aren't written in poetry can convey. And uh, we partner with a local school here, and we, for a two-week science unit, integrated poetry into hmm. science instruction. Wow! Uh, and the thought there was that yeah. could the integration of poetry in science help? you know, enchant the students about the natural world around, right? Could, could it create the sense of enchantment? Could it generate wonder as yeah. the students are just studying, like, you know, the first graders are studying birds, right? Like, you know, you can do this kind of scientific textbook presentation of birds, you know, and, you know, learn right. all the Latin names and yeah. uh, species, genus, and like, you can bore them to death, right? Or like, you know, what we did was we curated poems like, uh, so Emily Dickinson has this poem 
A bird came down the walk one day. It did not know I saw. It bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw, right? And and like you know, <laughs> she goes on. It's just this her like yep. she's you just imagine her. Like I don't know if she's like in her yard or something, right? And sees right. this bird, and then she's paying attention to all these these details. You know, she's using metaphor. Like what the results? You know, do you have any data on what? Yeah. So, you know, we, yeah. we measure things like, so for instance, we call this a measure of attentiveness. Yeah. And what we, what we meant by that was, do the kids start noticing the thing that they're studying outside the classroom more often? Do they pick up on particular details? And so, you know, when we asked kids about whether they start noticing birds more, and if you see a bird, do you notice what color it is? That the kids that got poetry, you know, relative to the the kids that didn't get poetry, you know, they 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 measured higher on that. They were noticing things about birds, right? And, and there's this kind of sense of wonder and enchantment that we were picking up on. That's great. Yeah. So you know, so it's fascinating to see, and and I mean, definitely, you know, the kids that got poetry, they 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 caught something about the thing that they were studying because of poetry in a way that some non-poetic, right? Some right, conventional right. way of presenting these topics wouldn't convey, right? So um, anyway, it's, it's, it was a fascinating study to see. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You know, for decades in K-12 education, especially in, in, in some schools of education, this classical liberal arts education has, you know, often been looked upon with suspicion or even sometimes outright hostility. Could you talk about these tensions in K-12 policymaking between, you know, what has been sort of the more prevailing progressive education theories and the liberal arts uh, based in academic content, as well as American education's ongoing struggles on national and international measures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's a, you know, a lot there. And certainly there's some controversies and things that people are navigating and figuring out both, you know, within, without, the, uh, outside the movement. So first of all, I, I think a lot of the suspicion and, and hostility even would, would come from not a misunderstanding of what classical liberal arts education is. So, for instance, a common misconception is that all classical schools do is teach texts written by old white dad European males. Right? And it's kind of this like, you know, really narrow kind of education. But, you know, in, in reality, you know, civilizations of all cultures throughout history, of you know, all across the globe have asked the same big questions, right? Like, what is a good life? Or you know, how should I live, right? What do I owe my neighbor, right? Why does evil exist and what do we do with it, right? And and, and this is- a, questions. Yeah, timeless questions that are common to, to all cultures across time. And really classical education is broadly about entering into this, this you know, we call it great conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. And and in it, trying to discover what what is it about? What, what's common in our humanity, even even amidst our, our differences? You know, and so, I mean, you know, yesterday, I guess, you know, we, we, we commemorated the, what, the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Right. And, yes. you know, King, I mean, read, you know, I, I, I like to sign. A, he has this a little article that he wrote in when he was uh, an undergrad student about the, the importance of character education, actually. You know, it's something I assign to, to my students sometimes. And, you know, in that essay, and actually you can look at a lot of his writings, you know, letter from a, his letter from Birmingham jail, like he is drawing from this tradition. He is interacting with the themes that, that have been brought up, you know, by the Greeks, by the white dead European males, you know, that, 
that he he is in conversation with these people. And so that's kind of the the, the nature really of, of cla- what classical ed- education should be. It's it's this participation in this great conversation, right? What's what's justice? What's what do we owe? What's good? What should we be doing? Right. So so I think that's, you know, that's probably one source or just one misconception that's pretty common. I mean, the, the I think the other misconception, maybe it's it's more pedagogical, would be that classical schools, all they do is just kind of drill and kill teaching techniques. <laughs> and, and certainly, you know, those schools of education and, you know, progressive education theories, you know, they take the opposite view, like they, they, they critique that approach. Now, I'd say again, that's that's a little bit of a misconception of what classical liberal arts education is. You know, so it's true uh, that there's a lot of memorization, particularly at the younger grades. But the fact is that a lot of it's done with, you know, all of it's really done with a lot of joy. You know, I'll, I'll bet you, and I've seen this visiting classrooms, but go to a classical school, go into a elementary school classroom, and you'll see kids doing a lot of memorization, but, you know, they're doing it with chants and songs. They're walking down the hallways, reciting poems and recounting historical facts with songs, right? And there's music, you know, and and the students love it. Like there's joy, right? And so, you know, I don't know, you want to call that drill and kill, but I don't see any killing in that because the (laughs) students are alive, you know? And so while you might say progressive pedagogical theorists, you know, they want to make learning enjoyable. They want to not simply teach kids what to think, but how to think, right? There's this, you know, those kind of common mantras. You know, I'd say classical education does exactly that, right? It makes yep. learning enjoyable. It's it's there to cultivate wonder. It's there to equip skills with uh, students with the skills for how do you learn to learn? How do you become a lifelong learner, right? And that's where you might hear grammar, logic, and rhetoric, right? Those those that, the trivium there. That's that's the whole. That's the heartbeat behind classical pedagogy. And so. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some suspicion hostility, but I think a lot of it's just based in some mischaracterizations of what classical pedagogy and classical schools are actually all about. I have to tell you, before I turn you over to Alicia, I just have to say that I am one of those people who is a lawyer but never practiced law a day in my life. (laughs) The one thing that I remember reading in law school that to this day affects me and I'm still just a fine breathtaking was the letter from a Birmingham jail. Mm, mm, I remember mm. nothing else I read in law school, but I sure do remember that. That was a masterpiece. So anyway, with that, I'll stop talking and turn you over to Alicia. And I appreciate that segue because I agree with you. I think the letter from the Birmingham jail, I would argue, is one of the best pieces of American literature we've seen. Mm, Um, Yeah. It's just so powerful in so many ways and even relevant today. Yeah, yeah. You might argue more relevant. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So this has been very fascinating. And Professor Chang, I appreciate you helping to push my thinking because I am one of those people who asks, when am I going to use this math ever again in my life? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) funny, as someone who supported the ideals of Common Core, as a state legislator, it was something different when I was sitting at the kitchen table with my daughter having to Mm. do the Common Core math and realizing that I think our hearts run the right place, but I'm not sure in implementation we did this exactly right. Mm -hmm. And so just this idea that we have to teach students, it's not just about what they know, but it's also about who they are and how they think. So I appreciate that. And then I didn't know, like Charlie, before this, what pure math was, and now I know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> but I want to talk about school choice a little bit. It's an interesting time in our country when we talk about school choice and kind of how these conversations are moving these days. And so it, it certainly can be said for decades or longer that solid liberal arts education has been central and a successful part of private, religious, and many, many higher performing charter schools. Yeah, yeah. And so as more and more states are embracing school choice, including things like ESAs, can you talk about the relationship between expanding school choice and the need to have classical learning shape young people's formative educational experiences? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, so I think personally, I, I think school choice is is good policy for two big reasons. So one, it, it enables alternative models and approaches to education to really take root, right, in in just what's out there. And I think it's good policy. Secondly, because essentially lets parents choose right, an education that aligns with the values that they have and the hopes they have for, for their kids. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're asking about what's the connection to classical education. I see classical learning and classical education fitting exactly with those two reasons for why school choice is good policy. So, for instance, like, you know, take just the classical renewal right now. You know, I, I recently did a study of the growth of classical charter schools in Texas. And I found, you know, what we found in looking at the data was that enrollment has grown sevenfold in the last decade. And right. that's compared to just a doubling in, in the other types of classical schools that are there. And so, you know, my point in citing that is it's school choice policy that's made that possible, right? You know, Texas has long had a charter law and it's it's let classical charter schools form and, and classical charter schools are then delivering, right, um, this, this option to, that parents want. Um, you know, and, and actually, you know, maybe a little closer to home here in Arkansas, you know, I'm, I'm on the board of a classical school that's three years old now. You know, here in Arkansas, we just passed a the LEARNS Act, right? And so there's an ESA program in the LEARNS Act. And, you know, the funds are available this school year, right? We just opened school a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, we, we've been able now to, to avail ourselves of that program to provide, you know, our, the education at that school to, to families who otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be able to afford it. So, mm -hmm. you know, essentially school choice is allowing classical schools to, to take root as an alternative. And, you know, then on top of that, I mean, this is parents, this is what parents want, you know, mm -hmm. at least, I mean, not all parents, right? I mean, this is the nice thing about right. choice, you know, there's a lot of freedom here to find what, what, what you like and what works. And, but, Back to the, the Texas study that I did about classical charter schools there, you know, we surveyed parents who sent their kids to classical charter schools, and we had asked them what they prioritized in their child's education. And things like college and employment, you know, they were still important, but they were at the bottom of the list. Kind of at the top of the list was character formation, was growing mm -hmm. wisdom, you know, independent thinking, right? Things that are unique to the classical model. And so... Again, we're, we're seeing school choice make possible the creation and growth of educational options that fit better and align with what parents you know, have been hoping for that their kids would have. Yeah, agreed. And so I'm going to ask you about parents in just a second. And I want to talk about accountability for a moment. Mm, yeah. And so as states, particularly in red states, expand school choice options, what are some of the policy and accountability issues around school choice that you see developing over the next five years? And as you mentioned, parents, 
how should parents, state and local policymakers be thinking about addressing questions when it comes to enduring academic quality and just basic accountability? Test-based accountability is certainly on, on my mind, you know, that, now that the school that I'm on the board of is, is availing themselves of the ESA here, you know, th- there is a testing requirement, so I have to be thinking about that. But, yeah. but you know, so first of all, let me just preface this by saying like, yeah, you know, personally, like I'm, I'm a big believer in just parents, you know, they're able to discern whether school is the right fit for a child. I guess you might call that market-based accountability. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I think parents have a good eye to these things. And so, you know, I think we do well to not shut out their voices and discount what they're able to do. But, you know, that said, just, you know, just to bring back testing, I can live with it. You know, if, if testing is going to be one of these mechanisms to kind of ensure basic academic quality and accountability, I'd push policymakers to think about, in addition to school choice, offering testing choice. So mm. I, you know, kind of borrowing a, a term, I think one of my graduate students who works with me, Cassidy Sifstad, she, she wrote an op-ed in the Arkansas Dem Gas um, a few months ago, since calling for testing choice. That essentially, right, if we're going to you know, use standardized testing as a mechanism for accountability, so the danger in prescribing a specific test is that schools, you, you then morph schools into something that they're not, right? Because mm-hmm. you're giving a particular test that may not align that well with you know, everything about their curriculum. And so here in Arkansas, I think we've got a, 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 a pretty good solution. Um, we'll see how it works out over the next few years. But essentially, there's testing choice here in Arkansas. And so this classical school that I'm kind of on the governing board of, we're able to support families who can't afford this education with the Learns Act money, right, the ESA program here. And even though we're required to take a test, we're able to, you know, within some bounds, select the test that we like to use. And fortunately, the Classic Learning Test is this testing company out there. They're developing the standardized test that's a lot more aligned with classical curriculum, right? And so because that's available you know, we feel that we can be held accountable, but also stay true to, you know, our educational and and pedagogical paradigms as well. So anyway, I don't know, I mean, this is going to be a a big issue, I think, looking ahead. Definitely. And let me just ask for clarification. When you say test choice, are you saying you have to tell, have to have some assessment, but you get to decide which one it is rather than, let's say, for example, using the state assessment? Right, right. Yeah. So that's exactly what it's here in Arkansas. Gotcha. Okay. So you are in higher education, and I think it is safe to say that there are many schools of education that are not exactly supportive of school choice policies or maybe even parent-driven educational models. Mm -hmm. And so as parents and school choice leaders are looking for teachers to form the faculties of these new school models, including homeschooling, pods, micro schools, right, all of those kind of new things that are coming on board, Where should we be looking for pro-school choice teachers who are also well-educated in academic content areas? Yeah, uh, yeah, great question. I wish I knew the, you know, the the perfect answer for this. Yeah, no, I, you know, I'll tell you, even just being in, in the middle of the classical world, I mean, this this is a big issue. I mean, teacher pipeline, right? Where do we recruit teachers that, you know, would be aligned with the vision and mission uh, of these schools? And if I had to, to propose something, I think we need to really redouble our efforts to create alternative educated educated prep programs, right? 
if, if we're if we're going to find the teachers and leaders for tomorrow or even now, right? We're going to need to do this kind of institution building. And, and fortunately, some of it's happening. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you, kind of within the, the classical world, there's actually a, a, a lot of professional associations. So, the Society for Classical Learning, for instance. I mean, they've been building lots of programs and professional training offerings for school leaders. You know, I can think of the Circe Institute, Great Hearts Institute. These organizations, you know, they put on these these conferences and workshops and offer all sorts of online resources, courses, right? I think you're, you're finding associations spring up. And I think you're seeing some movement in higher ed too. You know, there's, there's a, a handful of higher ed institutions, you know, again, they're mostly private institutions that, you know, haven't really been, you know, for a long time in the business of training teachers for the, the traditional public schools that are creating their own teacher prep programs. You know, I, I think you think of University of Dallas, uh, Hillsdale College, you know, there's a lot of others there that are starting and building new teacher prep programs and offering them for, you know, not just people that want to teach, say, in, in private schools, but, you know, even people who want to have leadership in homeschooling, in the homeschooling sector. You know, I have a friend of mine that's actually taking some classes from one of these groups. Um, and, and she teaches uh, at, at like a hybrid homeschool type environment. Right. And so so I think there's some movement going on. But I don't know if you're listening and you've got if you got you got uh, financial means, you know, I just encourage you to invest in some of these institution building efforts because, yeah, we, we really need to bolster up the, the teacher and and school leader pipeline in order to to really support these schools and and sustain them in the long term. Excellent. That's good to know. That that gives us hope, right? Because we have to make sure that there are professionals who are prepared to go into these kinds of models. Yeah. Um, so it gives us hope to know that some of them are in existence already. Yeah, so yeah. last question for you. I think it's safe to say that during COVID-19, there are a lot of traditional public schools that didn't quite meet the moment, right? When it comes mm-hmm. to educating our children, and it perhaps drove a lot of parents to be a little bit uneasy and some mm-hmm. to have some unrest about what's happening in our schools. And I think as a result, there's been a great expansion of school choice interest and options across the country. And so where do you see state and parent-led K-12 education policymaking heading over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I'm a terrible gazer at crystal balls, you know, so uh, tough for me to describe the future. But yeah, you know, look, I think the genie is out of the bottle. You know, school choice is is here and and the more parents kind of get a taste of of what it offers, I think it just builds more momentum for this. So so I I think it's here to stay. And and I think uh, the Recent expansion that we've been seeing across states is, you know, will continue. Yeah, I don't see a reason to think that it would you know, reverse <laughs> at all. But, you know, I, I think with that being the case, yeah, I, I think, you know, what kind of would keep me up at night is, you know, as these policies expand, are we going to have the schools and educators to meet that demand? You know, kind of what we were just discussing in the last question, teacher and school leader pipeline, right? And so really, I, I think the, I see, you know, the trend is going to go, is going to continue, and where the hard work is going to be that, that we all need to kind of step up and, and, and rise up to tackle is simply building out schools, right? build out schools. How do we support them? How do we raise enough resources, whether it's, with, whether it's teachers and leaders, whether it's facilities, whether it's, yeah, all these things that we need to, to provide a good education. If parents want this and it would be a, a sad thing that the reason, you know, these policies just kind of 
waned and 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 just gathered dust and and disappeared was because we didn't have schools and options available and you know that we, we couldn't sustain some of these providers right. and so yeah I'm, I'm hoping that we you know we can all kind of do our part and you know in our communities and and whatnot to do the work of institution building and, and make sure there's always more and better educational options for parents that want this Absolutely. As a parent myself, I absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for being with us. I learned a lot today. You gave us a lot of great food for thought. Yeah, great. It's great to be here. You really did, Dr. Cheng. This was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. This week's tweet is from Patrick Wolf, who, like our guest today, is in the faculty at the University of Arkansas. And I'm a senior fellow at Pioneer Institute. And Professor Wolf has been a real friend to Pioneer for a long time. And in fact, last week, I was doing some writing about this new study that he's come out with about urban charter schools around the country and how their funding stacks up against district schools in the same cities. So our worlds are coming together because Patrick Wolf, who is, as I said, on the faculty at the same university and the same school within the university as today's guest, Professor Chang, was tweeting a, a couple days ago about uh, asking people to check out a long-form piece by Paul Vallis, who had run for mayor of Chicago and lost very narrowly last fall and is former head of the uh, Chicago public schools. And uh, Vallis wrote about this charter school study that Patrick Wolf and others had just done. I would urge you to take a look at that tweet by Patrick Wolf. And just to close the circle, it turns out, as you'll hear more later, Paul Vallis is our guest next week here on the Learning Curve. So make sure to Tune in next week when Paul Vallis will indeed be the guest. He's got a lot to talk to us about between this new study, between his experience narrowly losing the race for mayor of Chicago, a race sort of related to what Alicia and I were talking about earlier, where education was a very big yes, issue. Yeah, in the local race. So I'm very eager and very much looking forward to listening and hearing what he has to say. Same. So, I'm looking forward to it as well. Oh, yeah. It's really going to be an interesting one. Until then, Alicia, thank you so much. As always, it's a pleasure for us to do this together. I really thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, and, and yeah, and thank you for all of you for joining us on The Learning Curve. And we will see you next week.